Hey, Kurt, how you doing? It's Mark and AJ from Sports Talk New York. How you doing this evening? Fine, guys. How are you? We're very pleased to have you because I have looked forward to a book on Vince Scully. I can't tell you how long I've actually waited for, for a book to be written on what I consider probably the preeminent, the greatest broadcaster of my time. Um, I People who watch the show know how high I, I put him up there. He's actually number one on my bucket list of people I'd want to interview. So it's our pleasure tonight to bring in uh, best-selling author Kurt Smith. Um, as Vin invites his audience before each and every Dodger game, I invite our viewers to pull up a chair and gain some insight into one of our national treasures, Vin Scully. So welcome. Guys, thank you. Uh, great to be with you both. So the numbers that you state in your book are breathtaking. At one time or another, Vince Scully has aired NBC's uh, television Game of the Week, 12 All-Star Games, 25 World Series, 18 no-hitters, CBS football, golf, and tennis. He's made every major radio and TV Hall of Fame, got an Emmy Lifetime Achievement Award, star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, been named the most memorable in Dodger history franchise, four-time National Sportscaster of the Year, and top sportscaster of all time. Interestingly enough, though, he's never really been the um, center of a book, nor has he authorized a right. biography. So why do you think he holds his personal life so close to the vest, where is seemingly he invites you into his life every time he's on the air? Well, basically, he is a very protective. He's modest. He's private. He doesn't show his uh, feelings easily. He's talked about that. He thinks, actually, it's... Uh, it's a, a deficit. I'm not necessarily sure that's correct. But he's always said he would never write a book. He's always said that he would never collaborate with anyone else or, or support uh, an authorized biography. So a couple years ago, I called him. and I had interviewed him for a number of fire books, including Voices of the Game, uh, Voices of Summer, and What Baseball Means to Me, and had worked with him on a Reader's Digest a salute to his mentor, Red Barber. And I said, Ben, I respect your view. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to collaborate or, or make this an authorized biography, but I said, I need to do a book on you. And I said, the reason is, is because uh, you are so important to sportscasting that to write about the craft as I do without a biography would be woefully incomplete. Uh, it would be like writing about uh, uh, popular music without Sinatra or rock music without the Beatles or the presidency without Franklin Roosevelt because Scully is quite simply the Roy Hobbs of baseball broadcasting, the best there ever was. Uh, has been that uh, for many decades, has remained so at 81 years old. Now, and guys, this is an amazing feat, his 60th straight year of play-by-play. -play. It, it, it is, is phenomenal. Not only that, but he also works alone. In a day he does. He's the dinosaur. You know, all broadcasters, at least in baseball, 35, 40 years ago, did what Vin does now. Not as well, but they did it. That is... They would simply sit in the uh, in the booth and talk to you, you being the public. Now today he's the uh, the last of the uh, soloists. Everyone else has a colleague, and they engage in the empty blather and the stupid kibitzing back and forth. Uh, Scully would rather talk to us, and he does so. There's an intimacy, there's an affinity. Uh, he takes us into his confidence. But the amazing thing is, he does every pitch of every inning of more than 125 games a year. He broadcasts every home game. There's all the road games in his division, does some interleague as well. That is an astounding workload at any age, much less 81. 
It's amazing. Now, in your wonderful book, your final chapter, which is entitled Let Us Define Our Terms, right. you try and quantify Scully's brilliance. Can you yeah. share with our viewers what sets him above, I mean, so far, you know, above everyone else that he actually has been the gold standard of announcing for years and years now, but what makes him so different? Well, uh, Stephen Ambrose, the great uh, uh, biographer, once said that the, uh, the art of writing means the craft of learning. I agree. Basically what I did, it's my favorite chapter in the book, and a lot of critics uh, have uh, very kindly said as much so far, because I try to quantify genius, which is difficult because it's so elusive. It's like throwing darts in the fog. But I, I, I list a whole host of qualities, from poetry to realism, to grasp of his public, to privacy, to affinity, to knowledge. He's an inveterate reader and has been, uh, dating back to a Fordham, and even before that as a teenager. Uh, knowledge, certainly, I think the fact that uh, he knows so much frame of reference beyond baseball that he can insert into a game almost as if he's pushing a button. But I think in the end, language, he plays the English language like Yasha Heifetz did a violin, and he plays it in such a way as to seamlessly uh, tie, if you would, anecdote and uh, balls and strikes. You know, in a three-hour game, the ball may be played for eight minutes. So you'd better be an artist. You'd better be able, in essence, to... Uh, to fill dead air, and Vin does by using, uh, he navigates dead air by using language as an oar. For example, let me give you, give you just a couple of quickies. He'll talk one night about twilight's little footsteps of sunshine, or how an outfielder catches the ball gingerly, like a baby chick falling from the tree. I mean, that's poetry. Or he'll say of St. Louis, it was so hot today the moon got sunburned. Or of a weak dribbler turned infield hit, he'll quote Eugene O'Neill, a humble thing but thine own. And these are not exceptions. These are the rules. Night after night after night. Ad-lib brilliance. You know, he's not like a talk host who gets a seven-second delay or not like a hapless writer. Uh, we can do a, a lousy first draft, throw it away, and then begin anew. Everything with Scully is now, in the moment. And he shows what Hemingway called grace under pressure, boom, impromptu genius, game after game, uh, astounding. Not simply to me as a writer, but simply as someone who loves the English language. You mentioned his use of you know Eugene O'Neill and different you know references that maybe the the common man might not get. Now we've been lucky enough to have Ernie Harwell on the right. show, and Ernie yeah. has some of the similar stylings, and, and albeit a bit more folksy than Vin, yet Vin yeah. pulls you in as if you were hanging out with him either in your living room at a bar, yeah. and he just makes you feel comfortable. Well, um, Ernie, I talked to Ernie uh, Small World about fifteen minutes ago, in fact, and. Uh, He's 91, going on 19. Uh, he's he's from old Georgia. Vin, Vin is from New York. But Vin is the one, and Ernie does too. Vin can, in one, in one uh, sentence, go from uh, William Faulkner to the fielder's choice. Or he can go from Jimmy Durante to John Dunn. And he doesn't do it in a way that brandishes his intelligence. He's not saying, look how smart I am. Because uh, it is not condescending, but it is rather matter-of-fact. It's a conspiracy with the audience. He's taking you in. I love the title, Pull Up a Chair. I had to use it because he uses it every game as an invitation, and it's perfect. I mean, there's a wearability and a likability to Vin. It's as if you're sitting around a fire, except you wouldn't in August necessarily, but it's the, uh, it's the thought that counts. And uh, he gets the blue-collar truck driver, and he gets the college professor, and he gets everyone in between. Mark's going to ask you about a lot of things in the book that he struck him. I'm going to ask you one question. In doing this book and putting the book together, yep. what's the one thing that most struck you? What was your biggest surprise? 
My surprise was the uh, the consistent genius. That's that's one. Uh, as I go through, and so much of the uh, the book for me was the archives that I had uh, that I had uh, compiled of interviewing Ben, and also, of course, talking to compatriots now. Those are some of the examples that I just gave you. But I think humor as well. You know, you don't necessarily think of of Vin as a uh, yucky kind of guy, and yet he is. He was talking, for example, about Rennie Stennis, who was passing out the cigars, the former pirate ball player, infielder, passing out cigars. His wife was about to have a baby. Stennis was predicting a boy. It turned out to be a girl, and Vin said he only missed by one. <laughs> or Andre Dawson makes the <laughs> disabled list, and Vin said he's day-to-day. Then pause, and he says, but then, aren't we all? <laughs> or last year at 80, this, I just love this. A heavily, he's doing a game at Chavez Ravine, and a heavily sideburned player with, you know, the mutton chops on each side of the face entered the game. And out of the blue, you hear Vin forge ad-lib poetry. He said, what ho, what ho, what kind of men are these who wear their sideburns like parentheses? <laughs> <laughs> Now, please, take your time. Name one broadcaster, let alone sportscaster, who speaks like that. Well, the, the funny thing is, I've been such a long-time admirer of Vince Scully. It, it goes way back. And I'll never forget this, and I have you know, mentioned this on the air probably about five oh, times right. already. Yeah. Knowing that you were coming on the show tonight, I pulled out my 1986 box set of the New York Mets playoffs right. and World Series. Right. I pulled out Game Six because I was a yeah. season ticket holder. I'll, I'll never forget coming home from the stadium. Yeah, and I, at that time it was on, I believe, Betamax, and I, yeah. I watched the last, the, the bottom of the tenth inning. Right. I watched it tonight, and I'm yeah. even more amazed because I really wanted to break it down. And just bear with me because this is a very long question, but it, it now in retrospect. After reading this book, it just to me epitomizes Vince Scully totally. All right, so you go to that that game, okay? Yeah. First of all, Joe Gradiello was the color commentator right. in the tenth inning, basically non-existent. All right, maybe Scully's said two or three things, uh, unbelievable. During Mookie Wilson's at bat, the the faithful right. at bat, okay? Mookie's fouling off pitch after pitch. Now right. today. Obviously, you know, Darling and Keith Hernandez would rave and about what a quality at right. bat this was, right? And just say how he's fine. All Vince said, very understated, stated the obvious. With each excessive foul right. ball, he said, the ten, you know, foul ball two and two, tension mounts here at Shea in the bottom of the tent. Then he mentions to Gradual, can you believe this ball game, right? Yeah. And he's setting up this right. final play that we all know is, right. is the Buckner play, okay? The play develops, we know the call. Right. Ray Knight scores, and if I'm not mistaken, I believe Bill Webb was, was the director for NBC. Right. All right. From the time that Ray Knight touches home plate, okay, you go from Knight surrounded by the teammates to the crowd mm-hmm. on the first base side going crazy. Then the crowd on the third base side. Then behind home. Then to Rick Aguilera. Then to Hojo hugging Knight. Then to Bill Buckner walking off the field dejected. Meanwhile, no sound is being uttered. All right? Right. Then to the Red Sox dugout. Then to the stands. Then to a banner that says, let's go Mets, make the dream work. Then to Buck Harrelson saluting the fans. Then to Gary Carter pumping his fist. Then to Kevin Mitchell hugging Knight. Still not a word being uttered. Back to Buckner still walking off the field. Okay. Right. Then to Calvin Chiraldi in the dugout in shock. Back to Knight overcome with exhaustion in the Mets dugout. Back to the stands. Back to the Mets dugout. Back to Chiraldi. Then yeah. to the scoreboard that says, we win. Back to the Mets dugout. Then to El Cam Boyd. Back to the Mets dugout. Back to the Sox dugout to the stands, to a sign that had the N and the B and the C, you know, because right. it was on NBC yeah. highlighted, 
that said, now Boston chokes, okay? <laughs> then, you know, then a silent replay from behind Billy Buckner of the ball going through still no words. Then to a replay of Ray Knight from second base scoring, okay? Then to a scoreboard that said, baseball like it ought to be. Back to the stands, back to the Boston choke stands. Three minutes, 23 seconds go by. Not a word is spoken. Then all of a sudden, the silence is broken, and Vince Scully utters these lines. If one picture is worth a thousand words, you have seen about a million words. Yeah. More than that, you have seen an absolutely bizarre finish to Game 6 of the 1986 World Series. The Mets mm -hmm. are not only alive, they are well and will play the Red Sox in Game 7 tomorrow. Yeah. To me, it doesn't... I, I mean, if a guy did that today... Right. On a national broadcast of a World Series game and went three minutes without yeah. speaking, he'd be right. fired the next day. But yet, that's what made that moment so perfect. Well, yes. I mean, you know, isn't it interesting that you remember it with that, with that uh, intimacy 23 years later? I do, too, for a slightly different reason. I was a Red Sox fan, and I barely <laughs> yeah. recovered to this we bed. bring that up. But, uh, you, know, uh, you know, remember the show TV uh, show, Maud? God will get you for that. Well, he, he probably, we hope he will, but he certainly got the Red Sox that night. A couple things that I remember. Uh, before that, the bottom of the 10th, and, and Vin is saying, Shea is, is swaying literally. And I think you were there that night, and Shea Stadium could rock back and forth, and the, and the noise was uh, astonishing. What I remember, uh, not simply the 13 um, pitches, any one of which, had it gone the Sox way, would have won the uh, first world title since 1918. But I remember when Knight is coming in to score, and, and Vin says, here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. Usually he had that sing-song voice and still does. Not that night. That voice rocked. It throbbed. It was a light with feel. And yet, he never, ever lost control. He never does. Uh, even with the urgency in his voice, which I think was pitch perfect for the moment, he was always in command. And then, as you suggest, uh, he hushed for 60 seconds, came back, spoke briefly, then went again for the three minutes that you talk about. But it was the perfect call. And I do think that that, above any other call that Scully made, is how millions will remember him. The NBC duration, which was, to me, uh, 1983 through 89, to me, uh, no, no network has ever broadcast a major sport with as much respect and affection and love as NBC did baseball. And the cornerstone was Scully. This is his high meridian. The 84 World Series, Tigers, Padres, uh, the uh, uh, Sporting News said that perhaps no event had ever been broadcast with more care than Vin. 86, as I said, 1988, Kirk Gibson homers, and uh, Vin hushes for a set, uh, 67 seconds and then says in a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. No one has the ability to summon an event like Scully. You know, he draws the word picture and he gets his brush out and he fills the canvas, but then, boom, the coda, the, the climax is always, always... Uh, uh, so beautiful. But Scully, we talked about silence. You know, Vin, uh, Winston Churchill said that words are bullets you use as ammunition. Scully uses silence as part of his ammunition. He's more eloquent not speaking than most broadcasters are speaking. And he did that in 86 and 88. He did it for Henry Aaron when he was doing Dodgers television in 1974. Aaron Homer's and Scully literally gets up, and this is what he did with increasing regularity uh, with Gibson and also with Buckner, gets up, goes to the back of the booth, uh, pours a glass of water, then and only then comes back to the mic. He lets the crowd sound hold sway. And in 74, he comes back and he says, and I think this is almost a verbatim quote, a black man is getting a standing ovation in the Deep South 
for breaking the home run record of an all-time baseball idol. Again, the perfect summation. So then, um, with this exceeding discipline, he's a very disciplined person, uh, never gets in the, in the way of the event, never thinks he's bigger than the event, but has a way uh, of, of using language and that marvelous Irish tenor of his, much more Perry Como than uh, Luciano Pavarotti. Uh, he's the complete package, the total goods. We will not see his likes again. And what also surprised me, with, with the economics of radio as it is today, you know, take XM Radio and, and Sirius out of the equation, you would think that these production companies would try and go back to a one-man booth, but yet no one's even attempted that. You know why? They're afraid they can't do it. Ben can do it, but how many scullies are there? I think the reason that, that one of the reasons that, that broadcasters did it 35 to 40 years ago, by and large, they were better than baseball broadcasters today. They had a training in language, like Scully. You know, the Jesuit training, and he studied Latin at Fordham and, and of course, specialized in English. But you had Barber and Allen and Harry Carey and Jack Buck and Bob Prince and the great Lindsey Nelson with the Mets. Yeah, right. These are people yeah. who could do and relish the chance to do it solo for nine innings. A lot of broadcasters today, I would suggest the great majority, can't do that. Moreover, in their heart, they know they can't do that. So they welcome the chance to have a sidekick or some uh, kind of moronic aid where they go back and forth with, with the empty blather and the, and the analyst dissection of whether a pitch is a spitball or a curveball or a slider. My answer, who cares? Tell me a story. Make me laugh. Tell me something I don't know. You know, segue from Duke Snyder to the Duke of Earl. <laughs> That's what Scully does Absolutely. every night. It, it is that that as much as I, you know, and I grew up with, with yeah. Murphy, Kiner, and Nelson. And, yeah, you know th this trio of Keith Hernandez, Gary Cohn, and Ron Darling are good for you know now what what this, baseball is in yeah. this era. But nothing beats going out to the car, turning on XM radio, listening to. It, That's it's right. just such a refreshing sound. Yeah, I agree with that. So I, I think that, first of all, uh, Gary Cohen I'm a great admirer of. I think Ron Darling, particularly on the, uh, on the Sunday TBS games, a very fine job. And Hernandez has an appeal to Mets fans, too. I mean, they're not in the league of, of Lindsey Nelson, who was one of my all-time favorites, Murphy and Kiner. But then again, who was? You can make a case they were the, uh, the marquee trio in baseball broadcast history, 17 years straight. And people weren't tired of them then. But, yeah, I mean, you go out to the car and you turn on XM radio and you get Scully from the coast. And, you know, the genius of it is, guys, he's doing a simulcast. You know how hard that is to do? Simulcast is when you broadcast simultaneously on radio and television. And you're always competing because on radio the temptation is uh, not to say enough, on television to say too much. And only Scully is able to navigate that balance between the two. Listening, you'd never know that he's trying to uh, adjust to the uh, very different criteria of both media. He's that good. Now, interestingly enough, you know, this, is not, this was not your primary gig. You were, were not, per se, uh, a baseball uh, sports writer. Uh, right. You were a, a White House speechwriter. So right. how do you transition from writing you know, speeches for the president Right. To writing books about announcers and, and well, baseball. Well, you know, very easily because, uh, you know, when I was a kid growing up, up in upstate New York, I loved politics, had enough sense not to become a politician, but rather wrote uh, speeches for Bush 41 and also several for Ronald Reagan. And I loved baseball. But anyone who saw me play knows that I had no future on the field. You know the old uh, adage, you can't buy first base? I couldn't rent first base. Yeah. <laughs> so... 
Uh, I fell in love with the seamless tapestry of language, of words. There's not that much of a difference, really, in terms of what a president tries to do as opposed to a Vince Scully tries to do. They both try to compel and persuade. They both try to entertain. They both try to have a symmetry, a beginning, a middle, and an end. They both try to have anecdote. Ronald Reagan once told me, if you've got 15 facts and one story, if the story is told well, it's the story you remember. Absolutely true. And Ben shows that, and, and, and Reagan showed that, and I think Barack Obama to some extent does as well. Besides that, if you think of the average red-blooded American male, what are the two things in the public forum that he is interested in? Sports and politics, right? We may not know a lot about either one, but we think we do, <laughs> and we always have an opinion. <laughs> and throwing sex so, in the same holds true. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so you, you, you mentioned Ronald Reagan, you mentioned sports. Did you ever yeah. talk to him or, or hear about his very brief sports casting career? Uh, Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Yes, in fact, uh, 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 yes, uh, when he was president and, and afterward, I interviewed him for, uh, for several of my books. An interesting uh, postscript, the Scully book. Uh, you know, the, Reagan and Scully actually have a lot in common. Both, I think, uh, Republicans, Vid would never say so, but I suspect he is. Both conservative socially, both wonderful communicators, both very private. They put the lid down and you don't get, uh, you don't get past, uh, at least in a, a, uh, an individual sort of sense. But for several years in the 1960s, Ronald Reagan, who was then about ready to run for governor of California, and Vince Scully lived on the same street in Pacific Pasalisades, California. And Reagan and Scully would often, as I say in, in Pull Up a Chair, come home at night at about the same time, Reagan from, uh, from giving a speech and Scully from a game at uh, Chavez Ravine. And, uh, you know, the Gipper, when he saw Scully's car drive up, he'd wave him over, and, and he'd say, oh, Vin, how did we do tonight, meeting the Dodgers? And Vin almost always said in the 1960s, we won, because they did win year after year. Uh, and then when Scully joined a CBS television to do football, golf, and tennis, as you were alluding to several moments ago, he had an exclusive interview with Reagan in late 1980 after the Gipper had just been elected president. So, uh, uh, you know, I guess this goes under the rubric of small world. <laughs> There's also a little vignette in there about George Bush and Vin also have, have <laughs> right. playing against each other as well in college. Now, to, to sum up, uh, and I appreciate your time, I know that you've been traveling. Uh, to me, the highest praise that comes in the book is, um, I hope I, I'm calling this right, it was pick a student aspiring to radio yeah. or TV. Whom yeah. should he emulate? Almost every voice has, if not a vice, some cheek. Yeah. In decline, Mel Allen talked too much. Bob Prince would wander. Ned Martin misstate. Kurt Gowdy bore. Jack Buck could be flipped. Harry Carey morphed into a character. A child <laughs> should avoid each flaw. Vin yeah. had none. That's true. Uh, uh, that's not my view alone. Uh, my good friend John Miller, the master of the mimicry, <laughs> who does a better Scully than Scully, and does it in English, Japanese, and Spanish, you know, was once talking. He said, there's not a thing Vin does, does that I wouldn't recommend to anyone who wants to do this as a career. And I think that, as I mentioned in this book, I did a book about four years ago, Voices of Summer, where I ranked 101 best voices of all time of the more than 1,000 of broadcast baseball. Ranked them on a 1 to 100 point scale. I gave Ben Scully 100. I didn't want to. Nobody should be perfect in any craft. But honesty and the facts compelled me to say, you know, I have to do this. To me, he is the perfect voice. And incidentally, um, I think that that is how almost all of his peers feel as well. American Sportscasters Association, as I mentioned, this year voted him the top sportscaster of all time. And I think of, of, of some of the people that I've mentioned. Alan, 
uh, Barber, Prince, Carey, Nelson, John Miller, on and on, Ernie Harwell. Ask them who's the best ever. They don't bat an eyelash. Scully, each and every one. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think who we had on, which they used to, they, they joked. Yes. It, it, you know, it was the voice of God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, that's, that's what they say. Now, um, final question is, I don't know how much you watch hockey. In, because now I love seeing, hockey. Okay. Yeah. There's a guy that, if he did baseball, would be close. I, I shouldn't say close because no one's close. Doc mm, Emmerich. Doc Emmerich. Okay. Yes. Has very similar stylings. Also yeah. has the same, you know. The way he describes the game is different than any other announcer. Also, oh, yeah. his use of language, also unbelievable. You know, compared oh, to yeah. today's announcers, he's yeah. far and above. But well, he's a throwback. You're talking to the converted here. Uh, <laughs> I love Doc Emmerich, and there's a reason he does NBC's hockey because he likes Scully. You know, there's a Latin phrase, prima center para, is first among equal. Scully is, and so is Doc. I mean, I grew up a Montreal Canadiens fan, and Danny Gallivan was sort of my uh, of my uh, a hero on ice, but Doc Emmerich is, uh, is, a, is a, a wonderful announcer. Hockey is a very demanding game. You know, I talked about how, how not a lot is happen- happening in baseball. Too much is happening in hockey. <laughs> and I marvel at the precision and the diction and the, uh, the going, you know, for, for period after period and really never making an overt mistake. Right. I agree with you. I mean, if Scully towers in baseball, he does in the shiny sport. Excellent. It's been, you know, I have been looking forward to a book on Vin for such a long time. I know that I'm never going to get the opportunity to interview him. Just point. But, uh, well, tonight I'm getting a chance to interview Mike Richter, which so, I never thought okay, would happen right. either. See, but, you're working your way up. <laughs> and, and Marcel Dion. So it, 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 it's, the, it, it's a triple crown for me tonight to be able right. to speak to you and the two of them. So we appreciate your time tonight. A wonderful book. A great insight into the best announcer of all time, Vin Scully. So thank you so much. You're very kind. Anytime. All right. Thank you very much. You bet. All right. Kurt Smith, Kurt Smith. the author of a wonderful, wonderful book, Pull, Pull Up a, a chair, chair, The Vince Scully Story.